Hello and welcome to this podcast, which is part of our Arable Roadshow series. Uh, I'm Fiona Burnett, so I head Knowledge Exchange and Impact at Scotland Rural College, where I'm also a Professor of Applied Plant Pathology. And joining me today are my colleague Henry Creason and uh, David Bell, um, a farmer and um, IPM champion. Um, and what we want to discuss today is some of the, the IPM research, um, some of the new tools um, that will be coming, and then really to, to talk with, with David about, you know, the challenges and opportunities around um, more sustainable and, and profitable practices. So I'll let them introduce themselves. So start with you, David, a quick intro. Hello, good morning, good afternoon. Um, and welcome to this podcast. Yep, uh, my name's David Bell. I'm a mixed farmer in East Fife, um, beef suckler herd, finishing all progeny, um, cereal enterprises, potato enterprises, and environmental uh, uh, schemes, uh, agri-environment climate scheme. Um, and I'm also uh, a VI champion um, uh, nationally. Um, Thanks, David. Henry? So I'm Henry Chryson. I'm an applied plant pathologist at Scotland's Royal College based in Edinburgh. And a lot of my work um, when I'm not researching new sustainable approaches to disease control of predominantly cereal crops, um, a lot of my attention is on uh, integrated pest management, how we can measure IPM and set out pathways to improve the uptake of IPM, particularly in the arable sector. Thanks, Henry. Um, and I referred there to sort of the introduction of new tools and you've been working on new ways of measuring and quantifying integrated pest management. It's always been, dare I say, one of these fuzzier concepts that's hard to quantify how one measure equates against another and what's the most valuable approaches. So do you want to say a little bit about the new um, planning tool that you've been developing? Sure. So. Yeah. Quite right, we experienced the same sort of issues when we were trying to measure IPM. It's uh, There are lots of different practices, tools and techniques that could be classed as IPM. And actually trying to find information uh, in, in terms of their relative importance um, in the literature is just not, it's just not something that's available. So we decided the best way to do this was to contact the growers and find out what practices are currently being adopted and, and a few other things about them and their business that might help us identify ways in which we can improve the uptake of IPM. So um, we developed a short survey, um, just over 20 questions, of which six um, related directly to IPM practice. So we had others on the farmer, the farm business, their preferred information source, etc. Those six questions uh, were weighted by an, an expert panel which uh, included ag agronomists, researchers, farmers, uh, merchants, uh, policymakers. Um, in total, there was uh, 48 different stakeholders that contributed towards the weightings for this IPM metric. So we now have something in which we can, in, in UK and Ireland, arable systems, we can assess a farmer and a farmer for IPM and put them on a scale of zero to 100. We recognise this is definitely a continuum IPM. There's been a lot of work that, that indicate it does act as a continuum with people incrementally improving their practice over time, trying new te techniques and, and working out which synergies they can take advantage of. 
Um, so we do get a widespread in terms of adoption. And on our scale, the lowest was 33, I believe, and the highest was 91 out of a theoretical maximum of 100. So the average was about 67, which is quite good. So we do get a good spread, but it does indicate that the majority of people, in fact, everyone is, in, is adopting IPM to some level. However, when we actually look at uh, factors that drive adoption of IPM, some of them are, are not as intractable as you might imagine. And I mean, familiarity with IPM practice was seen as a major driver. Um, information source had a massive influence with those higher adopters preferring information sources um, that are much more active. Um, and so there's a flow of information between them and the IPM experts at discussion groups, at open days and crop walks. The higher adopters also seem to prefer um, an independent agronomist. Where, um, so there, there may be all sorts of reasons for this. One might be tied into the fact that those higher adopters are often of a larger farmed area, so potentially a larger business. It's got more capacity to rotate crops and things like that. It's also got more capacity to buy in advice and go for that two-stage process of seeking advice and then seeking the products, which perhaps a smaller farmer wouldn't do. Um, so we're basically uh, using this information and to try to devise uh, knowledge uh, exchange activities and also the corresponding research and development programs to really push IPM uptake forward. So there does need to be a lot of investment in IPM research. So that's looking at multiple tools and techniques together at the same time so we can get an idea as to their relative compatibility, but also the relative effectiveness of them in solo and in uh, um, multiples. And really, actually, the best way that we think to encourage IPM uptake is to try to get people to actively engage. It seems to be um, across the board with a to a technology adoption in general. If you can give people the information they require to initiate a change in practice, then they're much more likely to do so. So it's really knowledge is a prerequisite to any change in practice. So this information we're using is going forward now and this will be the new IPM plans which will be launched this winter in uh, in Scotland but also in England and that will give us a good way to benchmark our progress in terms of IPM adoption and um, so we can see if the procedures we put in place to increase uptake have actually worked when we come back to them year on year. Thanks Henry that's I mean interesting stuff and some of the questions that have already come through have been around you know maybe you referred to larger farms maybe having more options but if people are constrained by the rotations um, I suppose we're keen to emphasize that this is people baselining their IPM score against themselves and to improve themselves it's not about someone else checking up um, and scoring them relative to other people although of course we all love a bit of competition that's mm. part of it but do you want to say something about um, that piece for the people that are already scoring high, um, can they keep improving? And for the people with short rotations, is there something they can work in to continue to improve? Sure. I mean, there's going to be um, a, a different set of IPM practices that will be more applicable to particular crops, to different farming systems, to the farmer as well, because farmers themselves have a vary in terms of the um, the, the capacity to change uh, and also the capacity to accept risks. So there's something else with a larger farm business, you've probably got more um, capital and more ability to accept any sort of 
um, potential risks that may go down with any sort of change in practice. But yes, you've touched on something there. There's nobody scored over 91 out of the 100. So there's room for improvement for everyone. Um, and uh, that should never, it's almost the point you can never get to the, the stage where you're 100% IPM adopted because there's always new challenges, new pests and uh, environmental threats, market constraints as well. You talked about um, stucking a continuous spring barley, for example, that may be that that land and your farm, that's the best thing that's suited for in terms of your farm and business. So you may look at other ways to improve your IPM adoption um, within barley. So reducing the number of fungicides according to varietal uh, resistance ratings and environmental pressures and disease levels these sorts of things and um, can all be adopted so everyone can do something um, and so the best way to sort of work out what you can do is to attend these workshops meetings discussion groups to get the knowledge and find out what what hasn't worked and what hasn't worked from the experts and also your peers mm -hmm. No, and there was an interesting piece there as well, that clearly when you were developing this metric, farmers really valued the preventative measures. And maybe that's something that until now we haven't properly recognised in valuing IPM. You know, it's very much been about the what can you reduce, what can you take out? But those preventative things actually score very highly. We'll maybe come back to that. But you referred there to, you know, reducing um, inputs and you know, maybe I could just say a little bit about where we're at with, you know, some of the research on that. So clearly there are the, you know, the alternatives, the, the biologicals that may come along, um, although there are not many examples that are at a scale yet for use in our major arable and combinable crops. And really where we're at in terms of the research for reducing our reliance on um, pesticides. I mean, it's kind of stemming from there's clearly markets around more integrated practices. We're being driven that way um, by national action plans. And then we've got that, you know, developing resistance um, piece as well, which, you know, further kind of emphasises why we need to um, have more resilient systems. And I always sort of think we can think about reducing fungicide inputs in several ways so it could be about reducing the number of actives although that's flawed when it comes to managing resistance we're often using complex or diverse programs are helpful but we can think in terms of reducing dose or we can think in terms of reducing timing and again be interesting to ask um, David his perspective on this but it's the difficulty with reducing dose or timing is having confidence in the situations where we can do that um, without, you know, massive yield risk. And, you know, we've got quite nice, you know, pieces of research now developing. So if we look at the, the work we've done around spring barley, where through a combination of having more um, resilient and resistant varieties, less prone to rinkosporium, um, the T1 timing in spring barley is now in a dry season where we don't have a lot of rinkosporium risk. We know that that T1 timing um, can often be um, taken out. It, it's really in trials, you know, it's only about one in 20 of those where it's actually profitable. Uh, and that's come from a move into those more resistant varieties. And we can then focus on the, the T2 timing and the ramularia risk. So that's one place where we can think about timing. And I mean, obviously, wheat and septoria is a major challenge. Um, but again, 
where we've done work um, with the HDB, uh, ADAS, NIAB uh, and Chuggas, we've been looking at different varieties of wheat um, drilled at different timings and then using low, moderate and high input programmes. And again, that really shows what a strong driver um, drilling date can be on the septoria pressure. And again, I know in Scotland we would never deliberately delay a sowing date but self-evidently you always end up with crops that are early drilled because of their place in the rotation and vice versa. There are, there are ones that are later drilled where we know the risk is lower. And if that's a more resistant variety, um, we can then really start to tailor um, some of the inputs downwards and do that with a little bit more confidence that we're not having to constantly manage crops um, on the previous year's experience. Um, we can maybe come back to fungicide resistance in the discussion, but that's another piece about how we work. You know, we're trying to balance easels and SDHIs at the moment, um, and how we then balance, you know, the remaining multi-sites. This, you know, 2020 was the year we, we stopped having chlorothalonil as a multi-site option. I could talk about the placement of full pit for the, the full podcast, so I'd better save that for the for the next session. But for me, it is all about building that confidence in the situations where we can reduce our reliance on, you know, our, what have been our very generic programmes and move to a much more tailored approach. Um, but I'll maybe swing that round to David, because I know one of your issues that you referred to earlier in, um, you know, thinking in more sustainable ways was just that challenge of the, how you cope with the different seasons and, and the weather uh, impacts on the on the risks. Yeah, I um, what we what we try to um, build resilience into our our farming business, our soil structure, so it has the ability to withstand the extremes whether that be extremes of water or extremes of drought or, or lack of water. And um, with having a, a balanced rotation um, with livestock in the rotation, um, you know, we, ha we have a, a large uh, amount of FYM that we incorporate. We have good uh, biota in the soil and good organic matter. So we're a really fortunate place to be um, as well as having a good rotation. So the the drought resistance of the of the soil is is equal to its its ability to disperse the water um which which is healthy but again this the biota and the the healthy state of the soil then uh allows the crop to be healthier as well so it becomes less stressed and less susceptible to diseases and pests coming into it and you know it's not an easy fix it's not an easy It'll happen overnight. It's uh, it's been uh, a long, a long um, time doing this, and and it, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know if there is metrics of of um, our our more focus towards incorporating carbon and incorporating uh, the good things of of that uh, that we produce. Um, you know, we talked about baseline for I, IPM with Henry there. You know, we didn't. We never put a baseline in when we started applying organic materials, and um, so a lot of it is uh, uh, 
is just understanding why we do things and and tweaking it to improve it and make it better. And did you, I mean, was that a deliberate strategy to have animals as part of your operation or did you always have that mix? Historically, we've been a, a mixed farm mm -hmm. um, because not all our ground is, is good enough for arable production. Um, some would say that some of our ground still shouldn't be in arable production, but um, but we we want a balanced rotation. We we want to keep our team busy throughout the year, um, so we 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 comp make compromises and we 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 are there to make business to be in business to make money. IPM and and good practice only really happens when you're making money, and the two go hand in hand really. Um, as I see it, um, but no, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a with with um, um, learning and getting trusted independent advice from SRUC, from AHDB. Um, you, you pick up through the engagement in these meetings, and it, you're drip fed, and it, it kind of gets into your subconscious of of best practice and the ways to to improve your own business. And and there's not one point I can say from here onwards. It's it's a it's a, it's a evolution, and we 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 just make lots of little tweaks, multiple gains to build from. Yeah, no, and those kind of incremental improvements are often overlooked. And absolutely, there are many definitions of IPM, but that idea of balancing profitability with sustainability—they're not mutually exclusive, the two have to go together. Um, I was going to kind of touch on, I mean, obviously, to blow your trumpet, that you know, you were a Yen winner this year, um, but you combine that with, you know, very, very time. Like... <laughs> <laughs> and you yeah. blow, it, blow it properly and uh, three times, three awards this yeah. year, yeah. Three times. Um, so, do you want to explore, I mean, clearly you managed to combine very high yields with your sustainable practices. So do you ever find there's a conflict there? Or do you actually find the two go quite naturally together? Yeah, and sorry if I undersold you there. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Um, good practice is, is profitable practice. And and good practice is IPM. It, it's a th the three things are the same thing. And and we're all doing IPM. We just sometimes don't know we're doing it. And it's the it's just that we maybe shift in mindset and that we understanding that what we're doing already because maybe it was our previous generations did it for a rotation. Well, well that is still IPM. The um, using a plow-based system for to controlling weeds rather than a can or active ingredients. You know, different farms, different areas have different abilities to, to uh, non-invert cultivations or cultivate or depths of topsoil. And there's no two farms that are identical. So we all have different systems and, and a different aversion to risk um, as well. And I'm, uh, I, I don't like risk and none of us really like risk, but with the small incremental changes we make, you, we can 
we can see the direction we're going um, to engage with um, companies wanting to do research as well. Um, it takes the financial risk out to an extent. We've been very fortunate. We've um, been doing variable rate application of fungicides and PGRs and um, to have the have a company um, funding us to do this, it's uh, it's a great way into a technology that we, we, we can utilize and is paying dividends from it. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I mean we, we try and we have got healthy soils, so we try and and with being in an environmental uh, scheme, Again, we use our field margins uh, for for flowers for promoting beneficial uh, predators. Um, so we look at our thresholds for IPM for our, our aphids, whether we whether it reaches the threshold for application of insecticides. And generally, it, it doesn't reach those thresholds. So so why apply just because there's one or two aphids that it hasn't reached its threshold? And it's just it's understanding what is the, the, the cost spend, none of us like wasting money and being a tight fifer, uh, I, I, I don't want to put money on a crop when I don't have to, but I don't want to kill off the beneficial insects. There's more beneficial insects uh, in, the, in the environment than there are damaging ones. And uh, it's just that, it's that compromise, it's that understanding of, of what happens when you put a, a broad spectrum uh, plant protection product on a field that has the positives but also has the negatives uh, and it's getting that balance. You know, and interesting, you referred earlier to, you know, you've obviously, you're working towards healthier soils and I think I would admit that our understanding around the link between soil health and then the actual plant health and the different diseases is not particularly strong. So for something like Ramilaria that we know is stress related, there's probably quite a strong link between, you know, a well-nourished and understressed barley crop, understressed as and not stressed, um, where that's probably helpful when it comes to Ramilaria. Other things like mildew, for example, we know that a, a lush crop is more prone. So it's probably not the same for every disease, but I mean, do you notice a difference in the in the health of your crops? You just touching there on on say mildew, and um, we we're not really concerned about mildew because generally it's an easy easy disease to control. There's mm -hmm. um, so if uh, using our varieties, using the I think the cornerstone of IPM is the AHDB recommended list. And uh, and you know you, you look at the resistance is there and and because mildew is relatively speaking currently anyway relatively easy to control uh, as long as we get too big a hold um, it, it's not an issue really um, but if um, sorry if you're not forgotten uh, what was the main question. It was, I mean, just that link between your soil health and, you know, the, the health of your crops. So, yeah, I would yeah. agree mildew is a nice one that you can take in or out of your equation, depending on whether it appears in your situation. So, 
a healthy crop starts with your basics. And one of my biggest understandings about how I farm and want to farm is, is sorting out my pHs. And mm -hmm. I, I, from, from, from sorting out your pH, everything else begins to fall into line. And the, the flow of nutrients, trace elements, it, it, it all stems from having a balanced uh, soil pH. And, and adding uh, forms of, of organic matter to that uh, helps as well. And I don't have uh, all the answers for sure. I'm still learning. And, and that's the, the whole part of, of uh, farming. We, we still learn as we go. None of us know everything. Um, but I, uh, yeah, we try and we try and start the basics and build from there. Um, variable rate uh, mapping of of nutrients, um, so we're so we're actually putting lime when we put it on in the right place rather than just a blanket application. I think has has really been a a, a huge benefit. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe a statement of the obvious, but I mean, do you tailor your pesticide inputs to different fields and situations or even to part fields? In your introduction, you you kind of touched on it. The It's about attention to detail. And, and let's not joke about these things or let's not uh, hide the issue. Plant protection products are expensive. And why put them on? Why stress a plant? Even even a fungicide can can stress a plant. So why put them on if they're going to uh, stunt or or check your your growth of the plant? So we really do try and within reason try and um, do a different uh, prescription for each each field. You know, it, it's easier said than done when uh, it's a busy time of year. Uh, and and the, we do not we do not do a different tank mix per field, but we try and and where possible um, uh, alter it. And whether that be a a different rate of uh, volume of water, so same tank mix but a different volume of water uh, through it, and uh, to get a different concentration. Um, but we do uh, vary on the crop's potential, and I think. We need to start being uh, more realistic about the crop's potential when we're putting on plant protection products and and not be too rose tinted glasses thinking it's going to be a great crop if it, if it really doesn't have the ability to get to get there. Uh, but that comes from experience from, you know, trusted advice. Um, you know, I, I've been very fortunate uh, this year. We've, we've, we've won these awards and uh, with my agronomist Ian Anderson, uh, every time we, we went for an application, we said, "Is the potential there?" And, and I mean, without uh, without getting too hung up on on a field of barley, it was a it was a great field of barley all year, and uh, it just so happened beside the road as well. And every time you went past it, I, I just had to stop because it was a really <laughs> good looking field of barley, spring barley, and and without getting too to uh, just a sexy field of spring barley. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I was so chuffed with it all year. Um, and, uh, but again, there was other fields of spring barley this year that did not get anywhere near the same um, plant protection products. 
because the potential was not there. We got 11.3 tonnes a hectare of malting spring barley off, off uh, one field. Um, but uh, I think our, our lowest yielding field was 5.8 tonnes a hectare. So there's a huge variance in our enterprise there. Um, so we've still got a long way to go to bring the farm average up. Um, so yeah, different fields get different applications. Thanks. So it's not all about looks, but it is all about looks. <laughs> <laughs> Only on the ones by the road. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and that's an interesting point about tailoring things to crop potential, because again, it's one we often don't answer very satisfactorily is do you have to treat the poor crops even more kindly? Um, or do you actually put the investment into the crops with the highest potential? And again, probably one size doesn't fit all, but you were saying there you tend to tailor your inputs to the, the high potential crops. Yeah, I mean, the, the variable costs that went into my uh, spring barley field, the, the top crop there, um, you know, it was uh, 73, 74 pounds of, of fungicide uh, a hectare compared to a farm average of 53. And, you know, so that's a, a fair jump between the two, but the cost per tonne is negligible when you when you realise you're getting a, a, you know, a massive 11.3 tonnes a hectare uh, compared to, you know, uh, the whole enterprise average of 7.8. Um, yeah, so, the potential was there to invest that money and to get that return on investment. Um, so, so yeah, but again, it wasn't just out for pushing, pushing, pushing. If it, if it didn't need an insecticide because it's got its, um, its flower margins around the outside, its natural um, uh, protection, it, it didn't get it. Just because it had the potential uh, to pay for it, it didn't mean you want to throw money at it. It was still a very much uh, uh, we're here to make money, not just to push a crop. One of the things that I liked and what you said, Henry, and I think it's why the plan's been quite well received, is that idea that it captures the preventative measures. So I think there was always that worry that in um, carrying out integrated pest management practices, we somehow weren't capturing the decision not to put on a spray, which in a way, the fact that preventative measures like rotation of variety are now captured and valued in the plan. Do you think that will help with, you know, even if it's just about farmers being able to see that they are um, carrying out a certain amount of IPM measures? Mm -hmm. um Yes, it's quite, as you say, it's quite hard to um, wax lyrical about the benefits of a preventative measure if you've not actually had any pest or weed problems and things like that. It's like the absence is a, yeah. is a win, but not necessarily, it's quite hard to justify. But yes, yeah, so in this, um, we, in the new plan, we split it into um, weeds, diseases and invertebrate pests as well, because there's a whole host of different measures that could be deemed preventative some of which you you can see the benefits quite quickly um, so uh, sourcing clean seeds um, or if you're home saving seed make sure it's tested and treated 
it could be an easy sort of quick win and something you could see you can get a information quickly from a, from a seed test rather than something you implement and you're not going to get the benefits from it for another 10 years or another two full rotations or something like that which is more of an issue when you're dealing with uh, soil borne pests and diseases that can survive for a long time in the soil but yes so within um the preventative measures um, we've included uh, monitoring measures as well so actually scouting the fields regularly um, observing pest and disease levels using thresholds is all sort of captured within a sort of preventative approach because you're trying to um, reduce or at least justify the use of a plant protection product as David was saying there's no good throwing plant protection products at a, at a poor um, crop because you're not going to get that return so it's not justified it's in the same way that you wouldn't um, want to do that with, a, with with nitrogen inputs for example but one of the key things that came out of um, the, the research that we did across the UK and Ireland was that those higher adopters are really considering a lot more factors when they're deciding on a pest management plan so they will be looking at the growth stage of the crop the the weather and the pest pressure in the area they might use decision support systems as i mentioned monitoring and thresholds and things like that whereas the lower adopters were um, only considering a few of the options available and, and that really comes back to the idea that ipm is a holistic approach to managing pests that's economically and ecologically sustainable um, so actually fully sort of understanding which measures are appropriate and which measures you can easily implement on farm that are going to give you the best return for perhaps the, the least amount of effort and um, and one way you can do that is by looking at how everything interacts on farms that's actually sitting down at the start of the season using information from previous seasons using in, um, in particular fields using information from reports of diseases in the area national reports all of these sorts of things can um, basically give the information the grower needs to make the best decision they possibly can and that's really what IPM is. Thanks Henry and I did sort of say earlier I might come back to fungicide resistance but maybe just to ask you David whether fungicide resistance management is something that you factor into your plans and further to that I mean obviously last year we had to move away from chlorothalonil um, whether other multi-sites are part of your thinking um, and if they are is that about resistance management or you know just for other more practical purposes? Um, yeah I mean CTL was a loss but you know it, it's not the end of the world there's other active ingredients that uh, that combat ranularia uh, there's and there will be uh, resistance being bred into to crops and we are such a resilient and problem solving industry that um, any perceived loss of of a plant protection product will not last long and and we sometimes have short memories as well and, and once we get uh, using something else or a different practice uh, uh, it's all forgotten about um, I I didn't I didn't uh, experience the loss so much this year of CTL um, because it was a, for for ourselves here in East Fife it was a low disease year 
Um, we didn't have the pressure, uh, thankfully. Um, next year might might be different, and I might be eating my words. Um, but there, there's chemistry out there, and there's practices to try and and reduce the stress of, of, of the growing crop. Um, none of us like stress, whether we're uh, animals, humans, or or um, plants, and we all thrive a lot better without it. So I try and put that uh, that strategy into my growing crops. Again, we touched on the, the healthy soils. Um, so, you know, that's a, a targeted form of using less uh, plant protection products because I invest in the long term uh, um, of, my, of my soil. Um, you know, I, I produce potatoes and let's not uh, be around the bush. Potatoes can be fairly damaging to the soil. Um, but I try and mitigate that and lessen that by looking after it everywhere else. Um, and I, I think resistance is, a, is an interesting one for fungicides. I, uh, as I've touched on earlier, I use variable rate or, or have trialed variable rate uh, fungicide applications. And I was worried about the potential of uh, resistance uh, forming with using less than um, standard rates but um, seemingly that's not a, a thing uh, although you may correct me on this um dying to jump in and absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely the weight of all the literature is that the lower you go in terms of either dose or number of applications, the better when it comes to it? resistance management. So it's an absolute win-win. So yeah, I just to dive in. One of the questions that I keep getting asked this year is um, around the kind of, so obviously chlorothalonil was cheap and effective, so it was a relatively easy inclusion. And it's how people use a substitute like Fulpit, which isn't quite as effective and is more expensive. And we get a lot of questions about how to best use that in a programme. And I think like any other programme, I slightly dodge the question and say there's no one answer fits um, all situations. You know, the, the idea that you would use as much of the the multi-site, which is the low risk resistance option as you can. So as much of that low risk option and the as little of the higher risk option, be it the SDHI or the ASL, that's fine. But then in a practical situation with full pit, we can use a maximum of three litres. So you kind of have the hard choice of using a litre and a half twice and leaving one timing hanging out in the cold or you do three times a litre, or you find another multi-site, which you know, on barley you would be stuck to find a third. Um, but yeah, the, the sort of idea that a multi-site helps to support our other chemistry, but at the core, you referred there to we've, we've got options that we're, you know, we have, you know, the inclusion of new azoles like Revisol, we've got, um, new SDHI products coming. There are a number of, of newer products. We are not getting new products at the rate that we've lost old ones, but we have seen an uptick in the amount of resistant varieties and the average ratings that people are starting to put in fields, which is a, is a real positive. I think if you know, it comes back to the, the crop potential and the 
replacements for, like you said, a, a cheap CTL are more expensive. And we really then need to start looking at the potential of the crop. And, and we still need a crop to be able to harvest, to be able to sell, um, sure. But does it justify that, that big spend? And yeah, and having, being in the field, looking at it, being proactive and having trusted advice, um, there's no right answer. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's, uh, it's, it's compromising somewhere. Mm-hmm. There's probably wrong answers though. So if you want X amount <laughs> of control, there's a better or a worse way to get to that X amount of control. And my piece would be to use a diversity of chemistry that gets you to the amount of control that you need. Because absolutely, we're only doing this to do the job we need to do. Um, but using, say, a straight single product would be you know, the wrong option as far as resistance is concerned. Sure, and that's really um, an IPM measure that's quite easy to implement. I mean, if people are going out to spray anyway, thinking about the, the mixing of the sprays and the modes of action, having multi-sites in there to try to and make sure you're doing your best to not select for resistance in the pest population is something across the board. And other studies, I found there was a study in Norway earlier this year that found that the majority of the over a thousand farmers surveyed were practicing anti-resistance strategies. Whereas only a few were, were practicing quite in, in intensive and extensive monitoring surveillance, which requires a lot more time and effort and knowledge. And whereas um, if uh, they've got a good relationship with their agronomists, the farmer can quite easily sort of have a look and say, okay, this is good or bad in terms of anti-resistance. And when you can have a word and find out what you want to do uh, to taking into account the other factors, such as the cost of, of, of fungicides and the timing of them as well. It seems to be like that should be one of the easier wins. Mm-hmm. No, and it makes sense to go for the, the wins before we go for the hard bits. Mm. I was going to finish, David, with a question about whether you see the kind of, you know, if there are market drivers for this as well. I mean, it would be nice that more sustainable practices were, I know they're asked for by our markets, but we're rewarded by our markets. But do you see that element growing? Is that something we could do more to promote or...? Um, yeah, I, I, currently there's no, to my knowledge, um, added value in in uh, in. <laughs> I'd add to this one. Um, or just diplomatically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, currently, I don't see there being any increased premium on a growing crop. Um, for having a reduced uh, active ingredient or plant protection product um, portfolio used on it. Um, I I see it possible with the carbon reduction. Uh, it will come from policy, it will come from government and stipulated, or it will come from our end, use, end user markets, like our maltsters saying we don't want X, Y or Z we already have some active ingredient or plant protection restrictions on some um, uh, products we go. You look at quality assurance, SQC, uh, Red Tractor, um, uh, QMS as well. 
steward produce, they, they do have restrictions on what you can and cannot put on uh, the ground or the crop. So I think it'll come from that level uh, as well. But I think if we are serious as a as a nation to reduce our carbon footprint, we 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 have to start looking at ways to to actively reduce their their uses. Yeah, it's not an easy it's not an easy fix, and there will be hard times, and it will be uncomfortable. Um, but we're all in this place together, um, so yeah, we've got to make some some steps, and that's where us as growers rely on the research from uh, from SRUC and HDB to, uh, to to show us the way really um I think you guys have a have a have more of an answer than, than I do at the, at the bottom of the ladder should we say yeah I mean there's some huge challenges in there um she said sounding wobbly as a researcher but yeah it, I mean some of that you know meeting net zero targets it, it's enormous but there are you know just with the fungicides, there are very clear pointers as to where the, the biggest impacts are um, and one where we can all work together to um, point out the best practices and, and how you lift those best practices into policies and schemes as a whole other piece. Mm -hmm. OK, anything else that we want to cover today? Any final points? I just wondered what David's most concerned about going forward in terms of pests pest management on his farm? Um, <laughs> pest management, I was thought if you're going to, if you're just going to stay, what am I most concerned about? Well, <laughs> but uh, no, pest management, uh, I'm not concerned about pest management. I think with how I'm, I'm creating a, a diverse habitat, um, a patchwork of environmental margins, I mean, I'm not trying to stand up here as some, uh, no offense to sandal wearers, but sandal wearing hippie or something. Um, but, you know, I put a grass margin in or a flower margin in a part of the field that isn't performing. I'm not getting my, my return on investment from it. So I get a better um, return on investment by putting an environmental scheme, but also it has additional benefits. It adds value to my rest of my rotation because it has the, beneficial ecosystems and, and biota and life that that generate biodiversity across the farm and has natural predators and natural health. So it, it's originally I, I looked at doing it to to make the unproductive parts of my farm more productive, but it's having the knock on effect uh, or a compound effect of, of having that that increased benefit. and. And with those, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be in the scheme, don't get me wrong, and I'm fortunate to be able to to, to see these gains. But uh, as, a, as a pest control way, I think it makes sense. You know, I have a margin around my field. I don't prang my sprayer off a fence post. It, it, it's great. Um, you know, it, it's these little things. Don't look at it as a problem. It, it's a solution. It's, 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 it makes life easier and and it makes you, it adds value to what you do or reduces your costs. Um, yeah, embrace it, engage, and actually learn um, how we can 
go forward with these things. That's probably a good note to finish on. Um, thank you both, Henry and David. Um, and hopefully that, that's made a good podcast for people as part of our Arable Roadshow series um, for January 2021. So that's FAS and AHDB supported um, and there will be technical lectures and downloads and things to to go with this podcast so thanks to everybody. Henry could you say a little bit about how the new um, IPM plan is going to appear? Sure so um, in January and by the time of this re recording the new IPM plan should be on the Plant Health Centre website so you can type Plant Health Centre website Scotland and there'll be a link you can complete your plan there and you'll get uh, a, a downloaded copy for your records but you'll also get uh, your score out of 100 um, for IPM practice and a little bit of uh, feedback um, on how to push yourself forward in terms of IPM adoption. Thanks Henry and David do you want to say a little bit about the Scottish VI which you're newly chairing? Thank you uh, yeah the, the Scottish VI um, again, it fully supports and, and has worked with um, uh, your, both both of yourselves for the, the new IPM plan, and we're we're just trying to uh, encourage best practice. You know, have the four main principles of uh, IPM um, plant protection products, promoting best practice and uh, the industry collaboration with stakeholders and it, it's just it, it's keeping it simple it, it's keeping it uh, easy and and it's making sure the growers the farmers it, it's not rocket science it, it's saving you money and it, it not only does it save you money it should make you more productive or more cost efficient uh, and it's better for the environment it's a win-win all round, really. No, and again, I don't think we can overemphasise enough that this is not about other people checking up on individuals. Mm -hmm. It's a tool for individuals to look at what they're doing and then explore what practices they could do to improve that IPM score. So improving against yourself rather than um, it being attached to any other drivers or policies. Sure, and this actually links well to a project that we've got with ADAS. Um, it's a DEFRA-funded project sort of been run by the NFU, in which we'll um, use the information we get from the pest management plans um, and we'll apply it to a couple of hundred farmers and they'll go into different programmes uh, according to the, the type and the level of advice and guidance they get. They'll work on their land management plans over the summer um, and then by the end of it we'll uh, we'll be able to assess them for their IPM score again and I'm not expecting wholesale changes in terms of rotation and crops growing but there might be some in terms of um, the willingness to engage with different information sources and also their overall perception and how comfortable are they are now with the term IPM which can be a, a barrier. Mm -hmm. So it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of that which farmers do best with different types of advice and hopefully Going forward, that will be a way that the government can support um, the, in, uh, the increased adoption of IPM. Thanks, Henry. Thank you both.